Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good morning. Welcome to the American Enterprise Institute's live web event on the President's first defense budget for fiscal year 2022. I'm Mackenzie Eaglin. I work on these issues at AEI and have for a while. I'm joined this morning by uh, three excellent colleagues and we will go around the horn here. Um, I want to welcome all of you. So this morning I wanna to welcome Todd Harrison from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's the defense budget analysis and director of the Aerospace Security Project at CSIS. He writes extensively on uh, defense budget trends, on space, military space systems, defense acquisition, and so much more, as all of you uh, probably well know and why you're joining this morning. Uh, AEI colleague Elaine McCusker, she has joined AEI as a resident fellow, where she focuses also on defense budgets and strategies and innovation. Elaine joined us from uh, the Pentagon, where she had served as acting Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller from August 2017 through June 2020. She's also had uh, other work at the Defense Department in places like U.S. Central Command and elsewhere. And finally, to round it out, is uh, U.S. Army retired Major General John Ferrari, also a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He is concurrently the Chief Administrative Officer at Complex, which is a data analytics and cybersecurity firm. During his 32 years in the Army, uh, we worked together often in his last job primarily as Director of Program Analysis and Evaluation, but he also has a, a very um, terrific uh, bio and resume in, in many places, including Afghanistan and other areas of service. So welcome to my panelists. Thank you guys for joining today. I'm gonna to stop talking as the moderator this morning because I eagerly want to hear from my colleagues and we're going to let ladies go first. And um, Elaine, we're gonna go around the panel and have everyone give us basically their their summary take on the president's first budget submission, kind of what does it mean? Uh, we know it's late, that won't surprise anybody. In fact, I think it's the latest ever. Uh, we know it's late, we know that it lacks um, you know, out years documentation, meaning the five-year um, spending plan for the department, which typically comes over. And we know that it's large, it's about $715 billion. And so I'm gonna leave it there and let the real experts take over. So Elaine, good morning. Uh, tell us what you think about the president's um, first defense budget. Good morning and uh, good morning, everybody. There's a lot to talk about in this budget, even in just the parts that I wrote over the weekend. But I'll start with just three macro observations. First, defense is not a Biden administration priority. And there is an attempt to redefine what constitutes a national security investment to divert defense funds to non-core activities. And so why do I say this? I think we got previews of this fact with the interim national security guidance um, earlier this year, which actually didn't terribly focus on defense. And in early April with the discretionary budget top lines, for example, the OMB press release did not even mention defense, and defense was the only federal function to not even keep pace with inflation. While domestic agencies went up by 16%, including a 41% increase for the Department of Education. Also of note, the only federal agency to take a cut at 10% was the Corps of Engineers. This fact was further confirmed on Friday with the White House budget summary that mentions no actual military capabilities 
Among the investments discussed under the heading Confronting 21st Century Security Challenges are COVID, foreign assistance, the World Health Organization, the United Nations Population Fund, and establishing a global health security agenda, among other topics. When the summary touches briefly on the China threat and the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, it notes the importance of cybersecurity, but highlights none of the myriad investments required to compete militarily with China. Rather, the document states that the budget includes significant resources to, quote, strengthen and defend democracies throughout the world, advance human rights, fight corruption, and counter authoritarianism. This budget comes at a time when the threat is clear, the competitiveness of the U.S. military is in jeopardy, readiness to recovery is perishable, and comparisons of real investments and, and actually show China's defense budget outpacing the United States. However, rather than invest in military capability, the budget proposes to divert $2.8 in systems while not buying replacements. Procurement is cut by more than $8 billion, or $3 billion compared to last year's request, and readiness is cut by $3 billion compared to last year's request. The administration is also trying to redefine what is included in the national security, which is further increasing the amount of non-defense spending in the defense budget, and we can talk more about that, but I'll stop on that one for now. My second observation, putting aside the first point and continued statements that COVID is the most urgent challenge, the 22 PB largely tracks NDS priorities. So there's a focus on China, there's proposed cuts to legacy systems, the largest RDT new budget with a focus on disruptive technologies like artificial intelligence, hypersonics, cyber and quantum computing, among others like microelectronics, there's robust investments in nuclear modernization and missile defeat and defense. And all of these were themes of the 21 budget. The budget justification document notes that, quote, the continued erosion of U.S. military advantages relative to China remain the most significant risk to U.S. security interests, also very much consistent with the national defense strategy. China poses the greatest long-term challenge to the United States, and strengthening deterrence against China will require DOD to work in concert with other instruments of national power, also another statement from the budget release, which again is pretty consistent with the national defense strategy. And finally, the budget says that this will require streamlining the process for developing, acquiring, and deploying these technologies, which I hope points to the need to modernize PPBE, which we can talk about later as well. And by PPBE, I mean, the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process that the department decides, uses to decide what it's going to um, buy. So the focus and priorities are there, though the budget forces trade-offs that are difficult to align with that focus. It will be interesting, as always, to see what the service unfunded priority lists are. And my third observation, people are a key resource, but also remain a primary budget and cost driver, including many costs that may be better aligned to domestic agencies. So comprising roughly one third of the DOD budget, military pay and benefits to include healthcare, housing, schools, commissaries, and the myriad of military family support programs are and will likely co continue to be the single largest expense category for the department. Notably, this budget includes a 2.7% pay raise for both military and civilian personnel, um, which is a little bit unusual to see that kind of parity. We haven't really seen that in the recent past. Military pay and benefits funding grows by more than 5 billion over 21, and direct civilian pay and benefits increased by about 4.1 billion over the 21. The budget also provides 8.6 billion in military family support. So there's many other interesting things, the proposed investments, the goodness of including all costs in the base budget, 
bidding of priorities and increases for the Pacific, climate change, and more pandemic research. But I'll stick to those top three for my observations for now. Thanks. Thanks, Elaine. That was actually terrific. I really appreciate you giving us the total summary. Uh, Todd, we're going to jump out of AEI now and over to you for your hot take on uh, what we've learned over the weekend on the president's budget. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Mackenzie. And thanks, uh, AEI, uh, for putting on this uh, event and including me. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, uh, have not been able to read through all the justification documents yet like I, I normally do uh, it's going to take you know weeks to to plow through all of this information uh, and find the little nuggets that are in there. But I'll share with you some initial takes of things that I noticed right away. Um, first of all, overall, if you know, if I had to give this budget a grade, I would give it an incomplete. Uh, and I could have given that grade uh, prior to Friday uh, simply because it doesn't include the five-year projection. It wasn't expected to. Uh, without a five-year projection, you can't really see, you know, the direction, the vision of this budget. Where are they going? Why are they doing what they're doing? Um, and that is something we're just going to have to wait until next year. Probably the closest indication we've got to a projection of future year's funding uh, is in the, uh, the OMB uh, budget tables, where they show a top-line level of DOD funding for future years. Now, you know, there's no detail behind that. There's no strategy that's been informing that. That's just a, an OMB projection. But I think that's interesting because it shows uh, the baseline that DOD is going to be working with as it negotiates with OMB for future year's budgets. And that baseline shows DOD's budget growing at a rate of 2.2% in nominal terms over the next five years. Beyond that five-year period, though, it actually goes down to 1% growth, so below inflation uh, in those future years. Uh, so that is, is likely to be the baseline at which DOD is going to be negotiating with OMB about next year's top line and the FIDEP. So it's good to keep in mind, but, you know, that nothing is set in stone yet at all. Um, and when I looked into the, you know, some of the details going on in the budget, I, I saw good, bad, and ugly. Uh, all in there. I would say two of the things that are good uh, is that it prevents the previously planned cuts in RDT&E. Uh, so the last administration's uh, FIDEP showed that RDT&E funding would decline in FY22 and every year thereafter. That was concerning. It seemed to be inconsistent with the strategy. Uh, and, you know, this budget actually turns that around and increases RDT&E. Uh, and especially within the Air Force, if you look service by service, the Air Force got a huge increase in RDT&E. Uh, so that helps maintain the investment necessary for new technologies to support the strategy, which looks like it is largely a continuation of the 2018 NDS. Um, but what we still don't know, what's incomplete, is we don't know if they're going to maintain this high level of RDT&E funding in future years. Another good thing that I saw is... Uh, while they did not request separate OCO funding, that's great. Um, there's no need for that anymore now that we're outside the budget caps. You don't need that exception to the caps in OCO funding. They put it all in the base budget. Uh, what I was worried about is that they might not show us how much of that funding was going for things related to Afghanistan, but they did. They actually included some separate tables uh, that show both direct and enduring OCO costs. Uh, so it's things that used to be 
uh, in OCO. Uh, they are still tagging those items to show us, hey, here's what of those items are continuing in this budget, even though they're not labeling it separately as OCO. Uh, some of the uh, bad things that I saw uh, is that they did not make uh, significant reductions in industry. Uh, and I say that as a bad thing uh, because they're just deferring the tough choices. And the longer you wait to make those personnel reductions, you know, as Elaine said before, people, you know, costs are growing faster than inflation. When your budget is not growing at the rate of inflation, it's actually growing less than inflation, uh, then your personnel costs are going to eat up your investment accounts over time. Uh, you know, the sooner you start making those end strength reductions, uh, the, the less reductions you have to make in the end. You can start accruing the savings now. Uh, but they did not do that. They only made some minor tweaks uh, in end strength. Uh, and if you look at some of the cuts in end strengths, minor cuts in each of the services, a good portion of that was just transfers into the Space Force. So it's not real cuts. It's not taking people off the payroll. And I would say the, the ugliest thing that I see in this budget uh, is that it's not clear that the department leadership is all in on these divestments. Uh, they propose a number of divestments, mainly in the Air Force and in the Navy. But to push those divestments through Congress, um, it is going to take, you know, concerted leadership. It's going to take SECDEF involvement of going to the Hill and making that case over and over again to fight that battle because Congress is inherently uh, going to be predisposed against a lot of these divestments. Uh, and it is just not clear that the SECDEF himself is actually going to be personally invested in this and pushing it on the Hill. Uh, and so what that suggests then is that this, all of these divestments could just be a punt. They could just be saying, hey, we couldn't find the money uh, elsewhere in our budget. We couldn't figure out where to cut. So we cut these things. We know that you guys in Congress are going to restore the money for. So it effectively punts it to Congress and says, you go find the money. You go find the $2.8 billion uh, and, you know, see what happens. Um, uh, so, you know, that's that's not a, a good sign in this budget request that they're not making those tough decisions. Now, looking, you know, in a little more detail, I, I've been into the Air Force and the Space Force's budgets. Uh, they were overall winners uh, in this request, uh, you know, more so than the Navy, certainly not the Army in this budget. And I would say there are a couple of programmatic surprises in there that I would highlight. Um, a lot of the program increases we saw were things we were already expecting. You know, it was already projected in last year's budget, but a couple stand out. So ABMS, the Advanced Battle Management System, which is the Air Force's implementation of JADC2 for Joint All-Domain Command and Control. They've been talking about this as a big priority of the service, a big priority of the department, and yet they cut the funding uh, for ABMS uh, compared to what it was projected to be uh, in FY22 in last year's budget. They cut it by more than half. Uh, so that's going to be interesting to hear, you know, the leadership explain what's behind that. Um, is it related to the program, the execution? Are they rethinking their approach or what is the case? Uh, the other interesting one uh, was a big increase that wasn't expected in LRSO, the Long Range Standoff Weapon. That's a new air-launched uh, nuclear-armed cruise missile. You know, that program had been planned uh, to continue previously. It's still in uh, early development phases. 
Uh, but what we see in this budget is the, the requested amount this year is about 70% higher than they previously projected for this year. Uh, so it appears that they are accelerating that program. Uh, and that is something that had been a target by some arms control advocates and more progressive Democrats in Congress. So they're really doubling down on LRSO in this budget. Uh, I would also just note that one of the things I had been watching uh, from a space perspective was the Space Development Agency and their programs to develop proliferated low Earth orbit uh, architectures and more resilient space systems. Uh, and this budget keeps those programs on track. Uh, they are continuing to ramp up funding. They actually have some procurement funding for the first time uh, in this budget request. Uh, so it looks like this administration, at least for now, is sticking behind this new approach to creating more resilient space architectures. Uh, but with that, I'll pause, uh, turn it back over to you, Mackenzie. Thank you. Uh, yes, and if anybody was following you and I on Twitter on Friday, we previewed some of your points, which are great. Um, and classified spending is up, which I'm sure you, you'll talk about later as well, and it's probably included in some of your, your takeaways. John Ferrari, over to you, please. Thank you very much, Mackenzie. So I think that this budget is the, uh, the flip side. So first of all, let's acknowledge the fact that for a new administration to come into the Department of Defense in January and to make big changes to the first year budget with the limited number of people that, that actually come in in the first few months is, is, is a difficult task. And so uh, we'll acknowledge that upfront. But in many ways, this is the flip side of the Trump administration's plan for dealing with Congress, because as you know, these budgets are just requests. It's the Congress that actually appropriates. In the Trump administration, they would under request funding for the domestic agencies, uh, knowing that Congress would put the money back in down the road. Uh, and so in, it looks like here that the Biden administration is uh, under requesting for the Defense uh, Department, knowing that Congress will probably add back money uh, as part of a deal to get the budget through. And in many respects, they provided a roadmap, uh, the initial outlines of a roadmap for Congress to add about $20 billion to the defense budget. And we'll see as the service unfunded priority lists come out in the next couple of weeks, that roadmap will flesh out. But you can imagine Congress adding back $8 billion for procurement, probably about $4 billion in RDT&E. If you get into the, the analysis of the budget, right, S&T funding is actually down from FY21 appropriated uh, to fiscal year 22. And that's a place Congress traditionally adds money. So you can see about, a and, and the Army's research development test and evaluation funds is, is down $2 billion. So you can see Congress adding about $4 billion there. Then despite the fact that MILCON across the department is up from 21 to 22, uh, that's a place where congressional members like to add funding. And you can see another $2 billion probably be added there. And then uh, another $6 billion added back to O&M accounts for what will likely be, and we'll talk about this in a few seconds, higher than expected inflation that will erode away buying power of readiness in O&M. And so I think that this, uh, right, Congress uh, will, will come in and, and add about $20 billion back and will wind up probably with defense somewhere in the 735 range. Uh, the second point I'd like to talk about is, right, is the, uh, the discussion that there's a metric that because we have a record high RDT&E, research development, test and evaluation funding, that's a good thing. As if 
uh, and the input metric of dollars spent is actually uh, will generate an outcome. We know that the Department of Defense over the last 20 to 30 years has had a very difficult time transitioning uh, programs out of RDT&E and into procurement. And when it does, the procurement costs are actually much higher than expected. And without, as Todd and, uh, and Elaine talked about, without seeing the FIDA, it's hard to picture how within 2% growth. And one of the things when you look at the, 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 the president's overall budget, the Department of Defense funding from 22 to 23 is projected to actually be flat. And so from 22 to 23. So it's hard to see as you cut procurement and increase RDT&E, how you then transition programs out of RDT&E and into uh, procurement down the road. And we've had now several administrations in a row say that we're going to do a lot more in RDT&E, but we don't see the outcome of the new systems emerging. And so, so that's something that, that everybody's going to have to keep an eye on in the future. Uh, but also Congress is going to have to look at to see if the reforms in the defense acquisition system and how they resource things will actually produce output uh, and outcomes of better defense just because we're spending more in RDT&E. And I think there's a hidden uh, danger in the, the defense budget that we really have to talk about uh, going forward and now, and that's inflation, right? So inflation is the hidden danger that, that will eat the defense budget. Uh, recently, the I savings bond, the inflation index savings bond uh, is now yielding 3.5%, right? So if that's an anticipation of inflation of 3.5%, uh, right, the, the department is in a lot of trouble. Uh, so healthcare costs in this budget are up $2.5 billion, $54 billion of the $700-plus uh, billion is going to healthcare. And that $2.5 billion increase is a 5% increase. If you look at the 2.7% pay raises, right, that makes uh, military personnel are going up, and so is uh, the civilian, the cost of O&M is going up. What's interesting on end strength is that while military end strength has decreased slightly, civilian uh, personnel are up 1.1% uh, in the budget. So there'll be 1.1% more civilians, FTEs in the Department of Defense, while we'll have uh, fewer military members. And you have to wonder whether that's really the direction we want to be going and whether there can be efficiencies using technologies that are available in the commercial sector to really streamline a lot of those functions and tasks, uh, then allowing those money to be plowed back either into procurement or into additional military members. Uh, and so I think that, you know, when you look at uh, Congress kind of coming in to bail out this year's budget, but then next year uh, with kind of the flat budget projected, uh, the bow wave of procurement that will be out there if all this RDT&E does succeed and with inflation, uh, I think it's going to be the, the the Biden administration is going to have a very difficult task putting together the uh, FY23 budget uh, for next year. Thank you, John. That's actually a point that I've been raising um, on Twitter and writing about as well. Is all right. So I want to go around. Todd, you called the rec the the R and D investment as good, and John characterized some of my concerns with that, uh, which is basically I think that the bumper sticker takeaway, which I think this team is probably if they could choose their headline, it would be record R&D, research and development spending. Uh, but I think that's a failure of imagination. Uh, that was the plan uh, two secretaries of defense ago. It really was uh, 
when Bob Work was Deputy Secretary of Defense and birthed the third offset strategy. Wow. You know, this really has been a trend since five years ago. Uh, so, and and the bipartisan Future of Defense Task Force on the House of, um, Committee talked about needing to bridge that acquisition valley of death and get programs into procurement and production. Doesn't mean uh, everything has to be an MDAC, but I see this budget as a failure of imagination to do that. And I'm curious if all of you agree. And I want to start with Todd since I know you said it was a good thing. Yeah, I think it, you know, I, I still think it's a good thing, but I share John's concern that where is it leading, right? That's the big question because, you know, the, the goodness about investing in RDT and in E right now is that it can put you in a place to modernize in the years to come and to build the types of capabilities that we need to compete effectively in the future. The, the risk though, is if you're just putting money into it, that doesn't necessarily lead to modernization. If you look back at the, the last time we went through a modernization bow wave, it was the 1980s, right? And that was you know what a lot of us think of as the Reagan buildup. And you look at what happened is you invested a lot of you know, seed corn into you know, research and development technologies, a fair amount of it classified um, in the late 1970s, really under the Carter administration that put you in a position to then actually buy these systems and go into procurement in quantity in the 1980s. Uh, and so are we positioning ourselves so that we're actually investing in things that are going to transition into weapon systems we can buy in quantity? And I don't just mean platforms, I mean payloads, sensors, munitions, you know, uh, it is not just about platforms. Some of it is software, but are we actually making the right investments so that we can then transition? And a few years from now, we would then see, if we do this right, we would see procurement start to come up, RDT and E go down and level off. Uh, that's, you know, we don't have a fight up, so we don't see if that is their strategy right now. Um, but I am hopeful that at least they're starting to, you know, put money in to make those investments at first. See, I think this is the year we should have seen that procurement start to increase since we've had five years of steadily rising R&D. And, and this is, I mean, anything that's re really uh, you know, a good rule of thumb, it doesn't certainly apply across the board, but anything that's in R&D longer than three years typically needs a, a scrub or it's earmarks or pork you know, for Congress, which uh, they're not really doing those anymore. Uh, so uh, we're in year five of record R&D, quote unquote. And I think it's time that I think this was the year we should have seen that. But I'm going to stop weighing in with my opinion as a moderator. Elaine, you talk about the readiness cuts. Feel free to weigh in on the research and development angle. But I, I, I'm wondering how concerned you are about the, the reductions to readiness spending. Yeah. So before I get that, just actually a quick comment about the RDT&E as well. I mean, I think that the increases we saw, as you mentioned, were recognition that we were behind. But I think if they're not accompanied, as, as everyone has said, by uh, the right incentive structure and a way to do rapid um, iterative testing and fielding and a way to scale up. And again, this gets to what I think is needed reform and in, in the um, budgeting and execution process and in the resourcing process. Because if we keep doing things the way we've been doing them, I think we're gonna keep getting what we've been getting, which is, as you said, you know, we have RDT and OE and we kind of pat ourselves on the back that we're uh, spending this money in RDT and E and yet we're not totally sure where it's gonna go. And, and we also have, I think, uh, to look at the signal we're sending to the defense industrial base because we keep whacking procurement 
And we think that, you know, magically at whatever time frame to confront the future threat, these capabilities are going to emerge and, and need to be scaled up and put into our systems. I mean, who's going to be there to do it? And I think that, you know, I'm concerned about that as well. I am concerned about the readiness issue. I mean, I think that, you know, when you see uh, change uh, year over year to what we're looking at, even though the budget says we're focused on readiness, the numbers don't really show that. If ever we take our eye off that ball, I think we start to slip. Um, behind. And so I am concerned about it. I think that the rhetoric is there and that's useful from a leadership perspective. But if the budget's not there, also, as John said, when we see inflation problems, I mean, I'm worried that the readiness is going to get hit over. John, uh, I know you already weighed in on this and then I foot stomped your points, but did you want to uh, add any additional color? Yeah. So two things, I think readiness and future current readiness and future modernization are inextricably linked, right? Because if you hollow out the force or allow the force to become less ready in the near term, you're not going to, to borrow a phrase, right, that Elaine used on the production line, you're not going to snap your fingers and all of a sudden get readiness and modernization at the same time. So, and also you invite uh, proxy uh, battles from adversaries in the near term. If you kind of say, hey, you know, we're going to be a little less ready in the near term, uh, but we're, you know, don't worry, we'll be, we'll be really ready in the far term. You're, you're inviting aggression, which then at that point, right, has to be funded in the near term. And you wind up in a, in a kind of readiness challenge where we were in the 90 of overusing the force again, when you were planning not to really use it. Uh, the second thing I would have liked to have seen uh, to get back to this RDT name procurement, more innovation uh, in the in the current force. I think where uh, the acquisition programs in RDT and E have kind of failed us in the past is when you're trying to change everything at once. You're trying to change a platform and inject modern information technology, AI algorithms, and networking and computers, and you bring that all in at once, right? And Invariably, something's not going to work, right? I would rather have seen money set aside that the department, right, and this administration was going to take the first two years uh, of and take its current systems and then invite really the best that of our commercial sector to come in and really try to put new AI algorithms and information technology on current systems and see how that works. Uh, and then you can go forward from there and figuring out how you want to change platforms. In many respects, if you look at what they're doing in the auto industry and in other industries, is you start with the software, right? And then you build a platform around it, right? Because of the way DOD has been set up over the past 50 years, you start with the platform and then you put information technology in it. And I think that's where, uh, you know, problems are going to arise over the next couple of years that, that may yield the outcome, not yield the outcomes that people think are going to be yielded from all this RDT&E investment. Uh, so. Great. Thank you. Well, we're getting um, a series of great questions. So I'm actually going to start with some of our audience questions and then come back to my own because I feel like uh, we're, we're in they're relevant to kind of what we're talking about right now. And, um, and I'll jump back in when I when I can. The first question this morning is from Tony Bertuca at Inside Defense. And he wanted to talk a little bit about what Todd went over in his remarks extensively, which was the proposed 3 billion reductions in weapons systems divestments. Uh, it's, you know, there was a lot of talk in the interim guidance. There was um, in different versions of defense documents over this administration talking about legacy system cuts, right? Uh, and a big deal was made about that, but it doesn't seem like a number that's you know significant. 
do you guys agree? And, and will Congress agree with, with these reductions, first of all, and will they go through and does it really move the needle? Uh, we'll start with Todd since you raised it in your panel. I mean, your remarks. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you know, it, it was interesting when I, I saw these divestments and the specific numbers of aircraft and ships and stuff coming out. Um, <clears throat> first thing I did is I went into the uh, budget uh, simulator that we had developed together with AEI, War on the Rocks, CSIS, and I started punching it in and looking like, okay, so what are the estimated savings? And I quickly realized, oh, DOD, when they're proposing these divestments, they're not divesting the people, the end strength that goes with it. Uh, and so they're not saving nearly as much as they could if they actually downsize the force. Now, there are plenty of reasons for that because, you know, they're, what they're thinking is they're trying to divest some legacy platforms to then in a year or two bring on new platforms and then they'll have the, the manpower to staff the new platforms. Uh, so I get it, um, but that certainly limits the amount of savings that can be had. And, you know, I think that Congress will, will take one look at this and most of them, unless there is a real concerted effort by the SECDEF uh, to come over and make the point on why these things are needed and put some political capital on, on the line. Unless that happens, I think Congress is going to look at this and say, yeah, we're going to, you know, shake the couch cushions with some rescissions. We'll find a little money here and there. We're going to put these things back. We're going to make you keep them a little bit longer. But the other thing to remember is when you hear these numbers like 2.8 billion uh, in savings, that is one year's worth of savings. Uh, and when you actually divest something, you save that amount of money and usually more in perpetuity forever, right? So really we ought to be thinking of what's the five-year, what's the 10-year savings. And then the reverse of that, if Congress adds it back, what's the five-year, what's the 10-year cost? on the defense budget of putting these things back and deferring these hard choices. Does anyone else want to weigh in on Tony's question? I'll just make a quick point on that. I think, you know, I, I, you can't help but support the concept that you want to be able to uh, shed what is, you know, and cost benefit not worth it anymore. So things that are, have gotten so expensive and, you know, aren't maybe as relevant in the fight that you think you're going to fight, but, in this budget, we're seeing that without we're not really buying anything, you know, else. We've got this huge reduction in, in procurement while we're doing divestment. A lot of these have been proposed before, and you know, Congress had said not only no, but no. Uh, and I don't know that, you know, there's been a lot of the groundwork laid to change that opinion. I mean, we've seen, you know, the Congress already come out and uh, talk about this a little bit. And I think, you know, for the reasons that Todd mentioned, you really have to look at what, what kind of savings am I getting? And as I mentioned earlier, I mean, people are your most expensive single category. And if you're going to divest things, I mean, you really need to look at your whole workforce and your skill set mix or, you know, divestments into certain platforms aren't really going to save you a lot of money. And you're probably not going to be allowed to do it anyway. So, again, I agree with the concept of trying to look at, you know, sort of what do I not need anymore and how do I get rid of it. I mean, I think the same goes for, I mean, dare we say it, you know, some locations and infrastructure and, and those sorts of things. But, uh, you know, it's going to have to, as Todd also said, you know, really require a lot of heavy lifting to make that happen and to explain why, why it should take place. Over. Well, the next question I wanted to raise anyway, so thank you to our, our audience um, member, Jack, for sending this in. Basically, the Navy's budget was a, a bit of a surprise. I think uh, 
uh, at least it was to me anyway. And, um, you know, that not just the small total number of ships being procured, but also the types and the profiles, the reduction of one destroyer, which will hit uh, Maine particularly hard. And I'm sure the expectation is it will be put back in, but still that's a risky gamble. Um, but there's just the overall shipbuilding construction account has dropped by 3%. And then there were other reductions in Navy aircraft like P8s, like Super Hornets, um, some other weapons, et cetera. And so Jack writes that China has the largest fleet in the world and the Pentagon initiated a program called Battle Force 2045 at the tail end of the Trump administration, which seems to be rolled back as evidenced by this, this um, Biden budget. So uh, they want to know how can we do more uh, with less to say, how will the Navy stay competitive with these kinds of, now I, I know, got it, we don't have the fit up, but let's just focus on the 22 numbers. Will this make uh, the Navy less competitive? Yeah, so I'll say that uh, I was surprised uh, the most by by how every the, the the Navy and the administration walked away from what at the end of the Trump administration was a big rollout of the 500 ship autonomous Navy, and so that was kind of right stark in the fact that that was really missing from the discussion. Uh, so I, so I'm not sure how the Navy does move forward, but I think the Navy needs to be embracing. Uh, innovation in the near term, given how long it takes to to build ships. And uh, I think that this goes back to, uh, you know, talking about people, right? So I think that military members, right, are really what makes the American military uh, better than the rest of the militaries around the world, and it's our competitive advantage. So while all the talk is on RDT&E and technology and next generation, right, our, our competitive advantage as a nation are our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine, and guardians. And the Navy has had challenges being undermanned on its ships. And so I think that, you know, at some point, the Navy is going to have to either increase its manning, uh, which will lead to higher costs in military personnel, or decrease the number of the ships because, right, it can't keep taking the risk and current readiness of too few people due to efficiencies. Because it doesn't matter what you modernize to if if you don't have that base of tech of, of competent sailors, the modernization program doesn't matter. And in some respects, the Air Force, which has too few pilots for too many planes, is in 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 the same boat. Uh, proverbially speaking, right, in that, right, we, we, everybody talks about wanting to cut military end strength, where really I think we need to be holding military end strength and, and perhaps cutting structure to create the, the ability for the military members to train and then also provide input into the new technology going forward. So, so I think that this is, you know, this next year, right, some hard decisions are going to have to be made in the Navy and the other services. Uh, figure out what the future is going to be over. Yes. And I know on that last point of overmanning, um, keeping people on cutting force structure is something that you and Elaine wrote about together earlier this year. So I'll go to you, Elaine, next, and then quickly to Todd. Yeah, absolutely. And I was to say, I, I agree with almost everything John said, because he did cover some of what we wrote in our budget reduction lesson learned and kind of you know how not to go about this. One thing I disagree, I was actually not surprised what they did with the Navy budget, because I think that 
there were some signaling early on that the you know shipbuilding plan that was released last fall winter um, was not probably going to be something that the new administration was going to be interested in taking up. And so I'm not surprised by what they did. But I think that I, I completely agree with John. We have to embrace innovation. Um, we, you know, I think need to look at something that uh, we've looked at in the past, and that is, you know, the I think the pretense that we can trade capability for capacity and that these things are opposed to each other and it's either or, or I can, you know, make up my capacity shortfalls with capability. I think you need both. And I think we see this when it comes to sort of how we position our ships and what happens when we reposition our ships and that we, we need both capability and capacity. And uh, I am concerned with your original question about what this says about the competitiveness of the Navy, uh, you know, in our world kind of stage here. And I think, you know, the, uh, it, you also have um, what I mentioned earlier, what are you signaling to the defense industrial base? And, you know, are you going to be you know, buying ships or not? And what kind and what is the overall shape of your force over? Yeah, you know, one thing I would say is we really shouldn't be comparing the Navy's plans to this Battle Force 2045. Uh, plan that was put out at the last minute by the Trump administration, because uh, that plan uh, was just, it was not fundable. It was, you know, it was something where if you were going to fund that kind of an increase in the Navy, uh, in shipbuilding and construction in particular, you would have to make drastic cuts in other parts of the DOD budget. So, you know, yeah, that's nice that we can compare, you know, what they're doing now to Battle Force 2045. Uh, but then, you know, what we didn't see when they came out with that, you know, new Navy shipbuilding plan is what did that require doing to the Army? What did it require doing to the Air Force? Right. And, you know, we, we didn't see the downside of these big increases uh, in Navy shipbuilding, you know, the other you know impacts on other parts of the budget. The Trump administration wasn't planning a big top line increase for DOD. Uh, it was very close to the top line that we're seeing now, 722 versus 715. Um, so, you know, I think that 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 idea of a 400 plus ship Navy was dead on arrival from beginning. Uh, we should forget about that. Um, we don't know enough from this budget request to really get a sense for what the Biden administration is is planning long term. Uh, for their shipbuilding plan. So that's something we're going to have to wait another year to see. Um, but, you know, it, it's still, it's one of these things where I think it's an incomplete right now. I hear you. Like the bill payers for Battle Force 2045 were going to, I mean, that was the kind of, I would have expected the bloodletting that Chairman Milley has talked about in the past, and we don't know. But at the same time, this Deputy Secretary, your your former boss at CSIS, when she wrote the Strategic Defense Guidance in 2012, which was like, the precursor to the pivot, that was a redistribution document that preference the US Navy in particular. And so I that's really what I meant by I was surprised. I wasn't surprised that they're ignoring the Trump Navy plan, obviously, uh, but I was surprised because um, uh, of, of just her thinking in the past. All right, we have a question now from Capitol Hill from the Senate Budget Committee. Uh, Todd, in reference to what you had stated earlier about the OMB you know, document with the out-year increases and you know slowing the rate of growth to just one percent in the after year five, do you, Todd, and, and everyone, if you want to weigh in, please, uh, do you think it's realistic that the Pentagon can achieve uh, reforms that only require this type of growth? Uh, this using the baseline that would be a loss of two hundred and twenty-three billion over the budget window. 
I've got a short answer there. No, <laughs> I don't think it's realistic. They can achieve those kind of efficiencies. Now, you know, are there efficiencies to be had? Absolutely. And a link and, you know, can talk about those in detail. So can John. Uh, absolutely. There are efficiencies to be had. Uh, do I think it's realistic, you know, that we're going to save that kind of money? No, I don't think so. Elaine, you've been through these drills. John, you worked them uh, in the uh, in the army. Excuse me. Um, so this is a, a budget that not only will not keep pace with inflation, but will continue to not keep in pace with inflation. What what does this mean? Uh, will they be able to to continue these these drills that I think every secretary since 2010 has tried to to do? Um, but the army, with Night Court in particular, you know, army leadership is out saying in the last week, like we've night courted ourselves to the, the, the edge of the cliff, right? There's no more night courting reforms available in the U.S. Army. Do you agree with that? Yeah, so I think part of it goes back to uh, defining what is a legacy system and, and because, right, legacy for some reason has taken on a bad terminology, right? So you want to run around and not be hashtagged legacy, right? Because, uh, right, it means you're due for, due for a cut. Uh, but ref so so I think that kind of the divestiture of comp if reforms are how do we divest combat capability, we're never going to get there because, right, we need combat capability. Right. Reforms really need to get at kind of the administrative side of the Pentagon, uh, which is, you know, where the civilian sector has really, really uh, dragged out a lot of cost. And then it then it's at the macro level. So so I think at the con Congress level. Right. Should the Department of Defense spend $54 billion of its $715 in healthcare, knowing that healthcare inflation and costs are going to go up and squeezing out combat capabilities? Or should we remove healthcare funding from the Department of Defense and treat it as a separate fund and thereby freeing up that headroom for decision space within the Department of Defense? And so the reforms, I think, are going to be much need to be looked at if you're going to not resource uh, the Department of Defense at a at least at inflation, that they're going to write, it's like this giant anaconda squeezing the Department of Defense. And when you squeeze it like that a little bit every year, everybody puts off the, the hard decisions because, well, maybe I can just get one more year and, and then the, the spigots will open up again. And you wind up in a place where everything is broken five years from now by making some hard decisions. So I think the Congress is going to have to help the department uh, through some of these reforms on the business side. And we ought to be worried less about the, the, the divestiture of legacy systems and more about the right. How can we offload functions that are currently done by the Department of Defense, for example, in Defense Logistics Agency that. You know, I got it why they were formed in the, you know, after World War II, but given the warehouse and the commercial sector and the global supply chain, maybe a lot of those can be done by the commercial sector, uh, you know, cheaper than DOD is doing it today. Elaine, that was perfectly teed up for you to, to round it out. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, honestly, a lot we could talk about on this subject. And I think I agree with Todd's initial statement. Uh, if we are defining reform the way we have sometimes defined reform in the past, which results in across the board cuts? Absolutely not. And I don't think we should do it that way. I've never thought we should do it that way. I think that's the most irresponsible way to do it. And it's not reform. Uh, I think that, you know, in addition to what John and, and Todd have both said, 
really two things. Um, first, on the alignment of functions that are not defense, outside defense, I think would be useful in so many ways, um, not the least of which is, you know, a better public understanding of what we're actually spending on defense and on military capabilities and, you know, a better understanding of, you know, how much of the department's budget is not spent on military capabilities. And the second thing is, I think we really need to look at um, what are the barriers to actually harnessing the full power of, of the money that's been provided? And when you look at, you know, things like life of funds and color of money and the way that, uh, you know, the department, I think, hurts itself and is hurt by uh, not being able to be as responsive and, and reactive and, and, and um, flexible as it needs to be, money kind of falls off the table that was supposed to be spent on, you know, things that Congress appropriated it for and it doesn't end up getting spent on those things. And I think if we can find a way to bring those dollars back into defense, um, you know, and there's various options on how to do that and uh, make some improvements in, in the process by which we, we fund defense so that we can get every, you know, the most bang for every buck, I think that will help us in quote reform as well and you know plow that money back into the department so that if it doesn't get you know the three to five to five percent real growth increase it needs for the national defense strategy that it can live with you know a lesser amount than that over next question is from john harper at national defense magazine and i'm glad he raised this since we haven't spent a lot of time talking about it but it was in the summary document from the administration uh the what do you what's your all of anyone's take on the nuclear weapons spending proposed. I know, Todd, you talked about the LRSO in particular, but, uh, you know, triad modernization. Uh, there was some preemptive color, I guess, from the new team basically saying, you know, it's a lot of money, but we don't ever see it going higher than 7% of the defense budget. Todd, let's start with you. What's your takeaway on, on nuclear modernization, including command and control in this budget? I think no change uh, is the story here, that there's going to be very little change uh, in nuclear modernization plans from the Obama administration to the Trump administration to the Biden administration. The big modernization programs are planning you know, to continue on track. You know, it's the Columbia class uh, submarine, it's the B-21, it's GBSD, the new ICBM, uh, and LRSO. Uh, and then, you know, I, I haven't looked separately at the NNSA funding for a warhead modernization program, but there's not a lot of wiggle room there either, quite frankly. Uh, so I think, you know, the main parts of nuclear modernization are continuing as planned, um, you know, and, and that shouldn't come as a surprise to folks uh, that, you know, you look at who the Biden administration has been tapping for key positions in defense. Uh, it's not folks who have a history of wanting to cut nuclear modernization. It's people who have a history of supporting it. Uh, and some people who served in the Obama administration who are instrumental in crafting these modernization programs. So, you know, I think it's uh, it's really a, a you know, stay the course uh, type of signal that we're getting. Elaine or John? I completely agree with everything Todd just said. And uh, the only thing I would add is, I hope we continue to see a lot more earlier budget coordination and transparency between the National Nuclear Security Administration and the Department of Defense on the nuclear programs. At the, the risk of being a heretic on nuclear modernization, uh, you know, it's it sort of harkens back to, uh, hey, the 1950s call when they want their triad back, right? Uh, you know, that old Radio Shack commercial. And I think there's room for somebody with great strategic thought to kind of think of what does strategic deterrence mean in the 21st century? 
is it a ground, air, and and uh, you know sea-based nuclear triad? We've just seen the world be taken to its knees in a pandemic, right, by a little microbe where the nuclear triad wouldn't really help us. We've seen the colonial pipeline with cyber attacks uh, take 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 the north, you know, the southeast and mid-Atlantic to its knees and bring back gas lines. It may be time for a new triad, right, where it's kind of biologics on, on one end, it's nuclear as one leg of the country's strategic triad and cyber and information operations on another, uh, because you have to deter strategically on all of, all of those things. The nuclear weapons aren't going to help you with those other threats. And it may be time to look at, you know, if, if we are flat budgets and we are going to need to invest more in biological defense as COVID has shown, right, that, right with all the efficiencies in the defense uh, department to, to outsource and reduce hospital care, it may be that we actually need more, right? The Department of Defense hospital system may, may need more capacity as a backup to the civilian sector. Uh, and the same thing with cyber. And so when you look at the flat budgets, the inflation, uh, and you look at where the money is being spent, uh, that this may be an area where where some big strategic decisions on what the 21st century deterrence posture of the country is going to be. All right, John, you win soundbite award of the day for this panel with the giant anaconda in the 1950s called Want the Triad Back. Okay. So um, Todd and Elaine, well, it's kind of like a round out, you know, closing thoughts in, um, in general, but I, I know um, something of great interest to the three of us uh, in particular is the need, the long overdue need for a genuine roles and missions review by the department, which I don't see happening, uh, but we've seen this sort of military family feud spill into the public domain, particularly over long range fires uh, between the services, who does what, who buys what, et cetera, but it's not just in that capability set. Uh, so um, anything you want to say, including on roles and missions, the floor is yours. We're going to go Todd, Elaine, and then John. All right. Yes. Roles and missions review. Uh, fully agree. It's long overdue. Here's the dirty secret, though. Whether you consciously do a roles and missions review and allocate roles and missions through that deliberate strategic process or not, you are still making roles and missions decisions. Uh, and so, you know, they're doing it one way or the other. The question is, you want, do you want to do it thoughtfully and deliberately? Or do you want to do it, you know, in kind of a haphazard manner as things pop up and become issues? You know, the default right now is there are some things that just don't have a home, that they don't have a service champion, things like JADC2, uh, Joint All Domain Command and Control. Who owns that? Uh, don't tell me the joint staff owns it because the joint staff doesn't buy anything. Uh, so who's owning JADC2? Who is building that network of the future? Who is establishing you know, data standards, protocols, interoperability? Who's doing that so we can all work together? The default answer is if you say no one, it means each service is going to do their own thing. And that's where we're headed right now. Uh, and then there are other areas where we've got overlaps and duplication. We created a space force to do space. Why are other services retaining, you know, kind of core space capabilities of their own? Uh, if it's a matter of trust across the services, let's address that issue. But space programs need to be moved to the Space Force, period. You know, end of story. And ICBMs need to be moved to the Army. There, I said it. Long overdue. Elaine. 
Yeah, so I guess I'm looking at roles and missions uh, across the federal government, and I think the default answer is DOD will do it. And apparently it'll do it without any increase in funding. And I think we've got some interesting and somewhat troubling signals in throughout the budget documentation. For instance, you know, um, one quote, at home, the department will invest in American manufacturing, military families, and national disaster and pandemic response infrastructure, ensuring the department's positive impacts are felt across America as we work together to build back better. So, I mean, that all sounds great. And I think that we um, acknowledge that the Department of Defense has a long and, and good history of actually being very much an economic driver throughout the country, but that is not its primary function. Its primary function is to fight and win wars. And I think that right now we're seeing a delusion of that while the department is, again, the only federal department that did not keep up with inflation is being asked and expected to do all sorts of things that are not its core mission. Over. John, 30 seconds. Yeah, thanks. So I think, uh, you know, it's, it's been 25 years since Goldwater Nichols. So this is probably, you know, kind of something that has to be looked at uh, going going forward. And uh, just for the record, right, those uh, quotes, right, I liberally borrowed them from either commercials or common vernacular. So uh, right, I don't deserve a lot of credit for them. But uh, but yeah, it, I think it's time for, uh, you know, a Goldwater Nichols style to look at the, the, the roles and missions, not just across the military departments, but also the interagency, as Elaine talks about. But even the fourth estate really needs to be shook out and look at the, at the uh, within the Department of Defense. I agree. Uh, to do a Goldwater Nichols, you need a John McCain. And I'm looking around at you, U.S. Senate, uh, for some help with this. Well, I want to thank everyone for uh, joining us at the American Enterprise Institute today. I deeply thank John, Todd, and Elaine for their expertise and insights this morning. Thank all of you for your great questions, for covering uh, terrific topics. Not nearly long enough, but maybe we'll do it again soon. Thank you for joining AEI, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.